Welcome back to the Governance Podcast at the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society at King's College London. My name is Jeremy Jennings. I'm a professor here and head of the School of Politics and Economics. And I'm your host today. I'm very pleased to welcome Quentin Skinner, who is Barbara Bowman Professor of Humanities at the School of History at Queen Mary University of London, and who was formerly Regis Professor of History at the University of Cambridge. Professor Skinner is well known as a leading intellectual historian and political theorist. His most recent book, From Humanism to Hobbes, Studies in Rhetoric and Politics, was recently published with Cambridge University Press. Quentin, thanks so much for joining us at the Governance Podcast. We're very much looking forward to discussing your new book. However, before we do that, I wanted to ask you a few general questions about your research interests and what you study. You are an intellectual historian, often associated with what is referred to as the Cambridge School of Intellectual History. Can you explain first what do intellectual historians do, and second, what are the defining features of the Cambridge School's approach to intellectual history? Well, thank you, Jeremy, and thank you very much for agreeing to talk to me. It's a great pleasure to be back in touch with you. It's a pleasure for me too. Thank you. Well, um, being an intellectual historian, I think I would have to concede that it's not a wonderful label, is it? I mean, you can see how it came to replace the traditional label of historian of ideas, because that seemed to reify the ideas and get rid of agency, and of course that was polemical from the outset. But Intellectual historians, I suppose, would think of themselves as people who study not just the philosophies, but more generally the beliefs and attitudes that we encounter in the past. But then what's meant to be the distinction with cultural history? Um, And then again, what about the history of science? Are they examples of intellectual historians? I think they would all want to say probably not. So there are porous boundaries here. But I think what it's trying to capture is the idea that we are studying the activity of thinking in the past rather in the same manner as you would study any other activity in the past, you know, uh, making things or growing things or whatever historians have traditionally studied. Now, as to the Cambridge School, Jeremy, um, a vexed question, really. As you kindly said in your introduction, it's many years since I taught at the University of Cambridge, so I'm not sure if there's still a Cambridge school, but I could certainly tell you what my approach looks like, and maybe there's something distinctive about that. Certainly there has been supposed to be over time, or else I wouldn't have had so many critics. Um, So I think I could encapsulate my approach to the sort of intellectual history I study by saying something very general about the phenomenon of natural languages. It seems to me we do have to think, in rather Wittgensteinian terms, of languages as having, you might say, two dimensions. And there's the one that's traditionally thought of as meanings, meanings of words, meanings of propositions, meanings of entire texts. Uh, And that's been the traditional topic of hermeneutics. The interpretation of text has been an attempt to recover their meaning. Of course, deconstruction came along, but didn't alter the traditional questions of hermeneutics. It simply told us that there were no stable meanings. So I have wanted to focus on something other than meanings and their assumed stability or instability. I've wanted to focus on what I'm calling this other dimension, which one might think of as language as a species of social action. So that the question uh, when I'm saying something is not Uh, what it means exclusively, but what am I doing? I'm an agent issuing an utterance. What is going on here? Um, Let me give you an example that will, I I hope, really clarify how this significantly alters intellectual history. Take the case, it's a writer I've written a lot about, of Machiavelli. In chapter 18 of The Prince, Machiavelli says, a successful prince must learn to imitate the lion and the fox. Well, um, Interpreters have said, here, what we have to do, obviously, is unpack the metaphor. The uh, lion is the symbol of force. The fox is the symbol of guile. And so the meaning of the passage is that successful rulers have to reckon to include both force and fraud uh, in being successful in politics. I have nothing to say against that. That's obviously all correct. 
But now consider the following. The most important work of moral and political philosophy to anyone of Machiavelli's generation in Renaissance Italy would have been Cicero's De Officiis, his book Concerning Duties. Now, in the opening book, he talks about the virtues, and especially, because he's talking about morals and politics, the virtue of justice. And he says, there are two ways in which injustice can be done, either by force or by fraud. But force reduces you to the level of the lion, and fraud to the level of the fox. This is beastly, this is not manly, this is unworthy of humankind. All right, so now let's go back to Machiavelli. It turns out that in addition to everything we've said about unpacking the metaphor, he is quoting Cicero. He is also commenting on a particular formulation of Cicero's about injustice. He is repudiating it. And you might say, in addition, he's satirizing Cicero's moral earnestness. This is what he's doing. So a whole new dimension enters. And if you were to ask why that matters, the answer is that now when we think about the texts that intellectual historians characteristically study, we're thinking about interventions in discursive contexts. And that is very much the approach I always try to adopt. What's going on? To put it more pejoratively, what is this writer up to? Is there any particular reason when most of you, I mean, over, over the now it's more than 50 years of publishing, it's probably longer, I don't know. Yes. It's a long, long time. There's been a whole string of books. Most of them are focused on the early modern period. Yes. Is there any particular reason why you've been especially drawn to that in terms of what you've just said? Is, is that a particular yes. one, one, I noticed one of the phrases you, one of the phrases you, you use in many of your books is this, uh, the, the epoch-making Yes. In other words, that sense that what the period you're looking at, something really big yes. is going on there. That's is very it? interesting. I don't expect I've been very self-conscious about that, but I've wanted to go sufficiently far back in time for there to be, as you say, epochs, so that we're able to show moral systems shifting, uh, religious systems shifting, uh, whole conceptual schemes being abandoned, and maybe we'll even talk about that mm -hmm. subsequently. And... I think that my attraction to these much earlier periods, and I suppose I've written on the 14th century, and um, 15th, 16th, 17th, never later than the early 18th century, is this wish to come upon strong contrasts, and especially moments when contrasts are very strongly drawn. And why the particular, you mentioned your interest in Machiavelli, about whom you've written a lot, but one thing's pr probably primarily if you're writing about Hobbes of late, What's yes. the spec? When you're not alone in being fascinated by Hobbes, Michael Oakeshott was, and others. Have been. Yes. What? Why, what's the particular attraction of Hobbes? Why is Hobbes so important? Yes. In all of this, because he manifestly is. Why? Yes. As your book, your new book yes. shows the game. Well, traditionally, of course, Hobbes has been thought important as the most systematic exponent of a theory of absolutism in modern political philosophy. And again, that's not wrong. He clearly is. But I have been interested in Hobbes for two quite separate reasons, um, which are not strongly connected with that way of thinking about Hobbes. And one is in Hobbes as a theorist of freedom. Uh, and there we have a revolution. Hobbes is the person who introduces into Anglophone political philosophy a particular way of thinking about freedom, namely that the antonym of freedom is coercion which seems to us obvious, but was a revolution at the time. I was very interested in what exactly he was up to in wanting to produce that formulation. And the short answer to that is an engagement with Republican political theory. But for me, what's most important about Hobbes, and here I've been much in discussion with David Runciman and his wonderful work, early work on Hobbes and the personality of the state, is Hobbes as a theorist of the state. And that's where he is, as it were, in our present as well as in his own past. Leviathan is the state, and Hobbes is uh, the exponent of a particular way of thinking about the state, namely that it's the name of a distinct person, a fictional person, but nevertheless the seat of sovereignty, uh, which I think is, in contemporary political theory, neglected to the detriment of our ways of thinking about public power. 
And so it's really in relation to those two themes, freedom and the state, that Hobbes seems to me a person we really need to engage with. Uh, in one case, we might want to question um, an account, his account of freedom, which we would in general now tend to endorse. But in the other case, I would think there's a case for reviving thinking about the state um, as a kind of moral person, as Rousseau would say, personne morale. Could you just say a little bit, as you know, this project is very, very much concerned with the governance in general, obviously the state. Could you say a little bit more about what was so original about the Hobbesian conception of the state? Yes, certainly. Well, the state as a piece of um, political terminology was not very well established at the time when Hobbes was writing. Uh, of course, I would want to say that any attempt to isolate any strongly normative term, which is also a foundation for our politics, and give a definition which we could at least in principle agree on, uh, is a lost cause. I mean, these concepts are always weapons. They're always part of wars and debates. And we're never going to get a neutral account of these sorts of normative concepts. But what's important about Hobbes is the way in which he enters existing discussions about the state. So here there would be a very strong contrast with contemporary political theory. It seems to me we've largely evacuated traditional ways of thinking about the state. If you open any newspaper, it talks about the state. But by the state, it just means the government. So should the state renationalize the railways? That's a question about the present government. Should it now do that? Um, if you're feeling in a very fancy mood, you would pick up Max Weber's view, which of course has been incredibly influential, that when we talk about the state, we're talking indeed simply about a coercive apparatus, the apparatus of government, but it is apparatus over a particular territory. All right, that adds something else. But notice that we've just said we're talking about an apparatus of government. Now, in the way in which the concept was first introduced into Western political theory, the whole point of talking about the state was to oppose it to existing systems of government as a way of inquiring into their legitimacy. And the first way in which this was done was through the very traditional image of the body politic and the very natural way of thinking about the body as having a head, as we'd still say, a head of state. And so that's the way that Kantorowicz thinks about the, the king's two bodies, which is that there's the personal body of the king, but there's the body of the king as head of state. And that's a natural metaphor, head and body. But of course, it was intensely contested in the revolutions of the early modern period by people who wanted to say, this is a false metaphor. Political bodies are not like natural ones. A political body is its own head. If we're asking about the seat of sovereignty, it is not the king, it is the people. Now, it's into that huge debate in the English Revolution, which is a way of articulating the English Revolution in the 1640s, um, with, the, with, after all, the abolition of the monarchy and the execution of the head of state, that Hobbes enters to say, look, the seat of sovereignty is not the king as head of state, but it's also not the people. It is a completely separate entity. And that's a revolutionary moment. That's Leviathan. And that comes about by Hobbes saying, well, what exists in nature? The state doesn't exist in nature. A multitude exists in nature, but it comes to see that... Um, it can't live as a multitude because they have conflicting desires and the state of nature is going to be one of peril to life. So it's rational to recognize that and it's therefore rational to have a political covenant in which you will away your rights to an authorized representative who acts in your name. Well, of course, any theory of representative democracy agrees with that. So Hobbes says, notice, however, and this is his really crucial conceptual move, that if a multitude authorizes its representation, it ceases to be a multitude because it now has a single will and a single voice and it can act because it can act through a representative. So there's a new question in political theory, which is what is the name of the multitude which makes itself a person by having a representative? Or to put the question as Hobbes does, who does the sovereign represent? And the answer is the state. Mm -hmm. Now the state is simply a fiction but Hobbes says we need these legal fictions. And of course, he's right there. We need the idea that a corporation is more than its members and a state is more than a government. Uh, if we're going to talk about, for example, the idea of responsibility, we can't hold uh, an organization responsible unless we can treat it as a person and identify the natural persons who represent the fictional person. 
So there is Hobbes' theory of the state, and at the time, of course, it's absolutely epoch-making. It's not very influential in England, but I hardly need tell you this. It's extraordinarily influential in the natural theory, law theory of the state in continental Europe. I mean, this is what Pufendorf takes up. He says, wrong to think of it as a fictional person, it's a, a moral person, persona moralis. That's, of course, what Rousseau takes from Pufendorf, the personne morale. That's what Kant takes from, from Rousseau. That's what Hegel takes from Kant. And so it's an extraordinary story of the evolution of a particular way of thinking about the state, one which we have completely abandoned. So one of the questions that the historian of ideas should always be asking is, well, we've abandoned it, but is that a loss or is that a gain? And in this case, I think it's a clear loss because the motivation was to find a standing means to ask about the legitimacy of government, granted that what renders governments legitimate is that they act for the benefit of the people as a whole, i.e., for the benefit of the state. Mm -hmm. I often think, in fact, it is in England and Britain that we seem to have the most difficulty talking about the state. It's very true. Whereas, whereas in continental Europe, yes. you walk up to the average French citizen and say, what is the state? Yes. And they'll actually give you a pretty reasonable definition. Yes. And you do that in Britain, people just look at you as you I couldn't agree more. It's a very interesting fact about English liberalism that it couldn't adopt this view. And if you ask why, I connect it strongly to the rise of classical utilitarianism. Because if there's one thing that Bentham, in his early youth, hates, and of course it's the grounds of his attack on Blackstone, is the idea of legal fictions. But the legal fiction, as Maitland was later to say, trying to revive the idea, is the state. It is the most important legal fiction. It's only a fictional person, although it's the person who declares war and puts you in jail. And understanding politics is understanding how a fiction can put you in jail. And of course, the miracle notion is representation. That does everything. But we've never thought in those terms, because utilitarianism has told us, well, we have to talk about facts, and the fact is that there's a government. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. So that is absolutely fascinating. Just to take you back to back the, the, the first question about, about what does the intellectual historian do? I mean, we've all, people like myself, and generations of intellectual historians have learned so much from you. And, and I, think, I think the first thing we learned from you those brilliant first essays you wrote was, you know, that this was a really important thing to do. I mean, there was almost reached, I, mean, yes. I, I was in the political science department where it, it almost reached the stage where every department would have its tame political yes. theorist or historical political thought, which they'd occasionally bring out of the cupboard, and, and that yes. was it. And you managed to bring it back and centre stage as a really important part of what, we'd, what yes. we've done, and, and that's had an impact, an extraordinary impact, I think. Um, Looking at the, sometimes we, you know this question about well, what does the intellectual historian do? One of the ways in which uh, you've expressed, I think, many many times is in the sense obviously I want to use in the, in the latest book you talk you use you start with Hobbes what Hobbes yes. says and that beautiful phrase you've got about my aim you say you say my aim is simply uh, to supply enough history to understand the meanings and intentions of the writers I discuss by recovering the circumstances in which they wrote, which is your, par which is, which is your paraphrase of, yes. of, of Hobbes, which is absolutely wonderful. It's a wonderful uh, beginning uh, to the book. Elsewhere, you know, you've said something to the effect that well, one of the things that you do, one of the things about history is you study in fact, history for its own sake, but it tells you about the courses which we've not taken. Absolutely. It tells us about what we've done, but what we've not taken, mm -hmm. and therefore the possibilities that were available. And, yeah. and I mean, that's, I mean, that's, again, that's something I think we've all, um, you know, been greatly, um, uh, you know, learned a lot from that. One of the courses not taken, arguably, has been republicanism. Yes, and, and, and that's that's the other, yes. uh, one of the other very very important strands of your work over, over many years. Yes. Could you could you say something more about that? And because one of your books is Hobbes and Republicans, yes, if I remember correctly. Yes. Could you say something more about that? Because here's an alternative tradition. Yes. And one your view is which has been largely forgotten, buried away, yes. and one of the things you've been doing is excavating yes. around and bringing it to the to the surface again. Would you say something more about what you understand by republicanism and why you think this is so important? Well, thank you, Jeremy. That's a beautiful account of one of the things I've been trying to do. As you say, um, I've wanted to historicise uh, 
the subject of um, political theory and to make it about discursive contexts in which sometimes similar but sometimes different concepts are at issue. Uh, sometimes they look familiar, sometimes they look deeply unfamiliar. And I suppose going back to what I said at the beginning, one reason I've wanted a long durée is um, to see the paths not taken. And of course one path not taken we've talked about, which is the state. We, we just have given up on that idea in Anglophone philosophy. And if you talk, especially in the United States, to people about the state, uh, they have no notion of what you're talking about, although it's called the United States. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so the other concept that I have subjected to the same kind of scrutiny, you rightly point out, is the theory of freedom. Um, it's not I who called it Republican freedom. The classic work on this has been done by Philip Pettit mm. in his book of 1997, uh, Republicanism. And I published a book about a month later, um, in 1998, which was called Liberty Before Liberalism. And so we announced our views about this issue at very much the same time. But we've been talking together for many years, and I've been greatly influenced by, by Philip's work. So what he calls a Republican theory of freedom, and what I've preferred to call Neo-Roman, is a view which challenges what I've already set out as the Hobbesian view, or the view that would nowadays seem very natural to adopt, which is that if you are free in a choice, what that means is no one is stopping you from doing what you want. You're free. You're free because no one is impeding you. And so the antonym of freedom is taken to be coercion. Coercion might be physical, you might be stopped from doing it, it might be moral, uh, in as much as a threat might cause you not to do it. But that's the way, the fundamental way, in which freedom is affected, by acts of interference with your will. Now, the Republican view says, well, that is, of course, all true, but that absolutely misses what's critical, what's crucial to the theory of freedom, which is that the antonym, the fundamental antonym for freedom is not interference or coercion, it is dependence. Um, so the large conceptual gulf that opens up there is that on this account, you could be unfree even in the absence of any act of interference, or even in the absence of any threatened act of interference. Because what it is to be unfree is for you to be dependent upon the will of somebody else. The reason I wanted to call this Neo-Roman is that the ur-text for freedom seen as the antonym of dependence is the Roman law. Roman law, of course, being a law code, starts by asking who is subject to the law, and since it's a slave society, it has to say, well, citizens are subject to the law, but slaves are not. And that's because citizens are free, and slaves, by definition, are not free. But, of course, that leaves the Roman law with the question, well, what is it that makes a citizen free? It must be the same as makes a slave unfree. And the answer is having a master. The slave has a master, and the citizen does not. So the citizen might be poorer than the slave, uh, or, or, or might be in very exigent circumstances, or might have all sorts of difficulties which a slave with a benign master does not have. But the fact remains that the slave has a master. Benignness is neither here nor there, because to be mm. subject to the will of somebody else means that you're at their mercy. It may be all right, but the horror of slavery is that you never know if it's going to be all right. Whereas the status of the free person is that he or she has an independent will. So there's the, the Republican view. Uh, and, of course, it has enormous implications for thinking about our contemporary world, because mm. this is the view that we gave up. And if you asked me, in this case, were we wise to give it up, I would say that it was a, one of the great ideological missteps that we took. It's very easy to understand why we took it, mm -hmm. but we did. I just that I was recently read, well, I read it a little while ago, but recently went back to read um, a book by Gustav de Beaumont. Oh, yeah. Who wrote a book on Ireland. And there's a marvellous passage, I, I should send it to you, I've been meaning to send it to you, where he precisely articulates that position mm -hmm. in the context of the Irish and the British. Yes. And you know, it doesn't matter how free they look, Good. they are not free. They yes. cannot be free precisely because of their dependence upon the English and the fact that the English at any time. Yes, at their choosing, yes. 
could intervene. Yeah. And, and, and that's, I think, that Beautiful. The, the case of Ireland is a very good example, yes. I think, of, I of, think of, of that way of thinking. Very good. And I think that's a very profound case because it's the one that comes up um, from a very early stage in this debate. In fact, Molyneux's book called The Case of Ireland in the 1720s argues exactly this. And it was at a point where um, there was some pressure being brought to bear on the idea that freedom should be understood as absence of dependence. Mm. And of course, the Irish case is one of pure dependence. Mm. So they want to say we're in a slave condition. Mm. All colonies are in a slave condition. Uh, and of course, that became the rallying cry for the enemies of the colonists in the United States, mm. as it became. Mm. Mm. That's to say, this is the theory of freedom which is presented to the British. Mm. Mm. And there's very little that the British can do within the parameters of the, the neo-Roman view of freedom um, to answer that, because the famous allegation, of course, is that we're being taxed without representation, and so the level of taxation is wholly arbitrary and discretionary. Well, as in Ireland, and, and of course this is the answer that was always given, is, well, you can trust us, we won't do, we won't do anything terrible. But the point is, that's slavery. Why should we trust you? Because we're completely at your mercy. And I connect the repudiation of this neo-Roman view of freedom, which was more or less universal uh, before the 17th century, um, to the fact that they don't have an answer to the colonies, they don't have an answer to 18th century empire. But what they do begin to say is, as Bentham, of course, says, um, as a great enemy of the Declaration of Independence, is they don't understand freedom. Freedom is completely de facto. It's only the question, am I being coerced? And of course they're not being coerced. <laughs> and of course, and of course, the English did do terrible things as well. But uh, oh, sure, uh, yes. Uh, but um, but uh, I well, thank you because I, I, I came across this, and uh, I should realise that there's been broader debate about the Irish case. It's such an obvious yes. Well, example. as an instance of the general case <coughs> of colonies, mm -hmm. if you look at the Renaissance revival of the neo-Roman understanding of freedom uh, in great Republican thinkers like Machiavelli, and this is why I'm so interested in Machiavelli, not as the author of The Prince, mm -hmm. but the author of the discourses yes, on yes, Livy, yes. on how Rome gave up monarchy and became a free state, as he calls it, a, um, a civitas libera in, in uh, Livy, um, the um, being state in liberta. What is it to be state mm -hmm. in liberta? Well, it's the same for your body as it is for a body politic. It is for your body to be under the control of your own will. But, of course, if you're a colony, you're yes. under the control of somebody else's will, just as if you're a slave. So body politics can be enslaved. Mm -hmm. And that attack on empire um, and that uh, insistence on republicanism in the strict sense of being anti-monarchical mm -hmm. is the whole Machiavellian legacy. We might come back onto the, the routes not taken uh, late, later on and what yes. might be the broader implications of, of that, that, that neo-Roman theory. Um, of um, liberty, but now I would like to give, to give you the opportunity to tell us something about your your new book. Oh, good, yes. Um, from humanism to Hobbes, and um, since what the book's about, why is it important? Because it's essentially about about teaching the humanities and its impact upon yes. political thought and so on. So, yes, well, thank you. I, it's marvelous. It's a marvelous read. <laughs> extraordinarily rich. It's, well, that's very it's kind. Marvelous. Um, well, it's called Studies in Rhetoric mm -hmm. and Politics, and um, it is a series of linked studies stemming from work I've been doing on questions about rhetoric and politics now for quite a long time. As you rightly say, it's organized really around the idea of the history of a curriculum. Um, the humanities in the early modern period, and stemming again from classical antiquity and its revival in the Renaissance, was the name of a curriculum. Um, and it was a curriculum in five parts, of which the first was so-called grammar, which you learned at school, hence the name grammar schools, of course, because what you learned was Latin, Latin grammar. And then you learned classical rhetoric. And that was what you did for three years in the so-called sixth form, which was sometimes called the rhetoric form. That's what you learned. And what you were being trained in, and this training would continue at university in the Renaissance universities, in this country, of course, only two, Oxford and Cambridge, they reformed their curricula in the 16th century to make them humanist, which meant that you went on to study um, rhetoric once again, treated not, of course, just as a way of embellishing our utterances, although it is that, and that was important, but as a theory of persuasive argument. Rhetoric told you 
the optimal way to present an argument to have persuasive force. And so what mattered to the rhetoricians was not so much um, what they called ornament, that's to say the figure, <coughs> the figures and tropes of speech, but what they called invention and disposition. Invention meaning the finding out of the best arguments and disposition meaning organizing them into the best effects. Now that's what you learnt at university. Um, and you learned poetry and history because, of course, they were examples of this. Mm -hmm. And then finally, moral philosophy, the fifth item, uh, where you applied all of this. And this was a very practical training because what were you going to do if you'd been to university? One of three things. You'd either go into the law or you'd go into politics or, above all, you'd go into the church. But all of these avocations put public speaking, especially in a Protestant country, mm -hmm. of course, absolutely at the top of the agenda. So it was meant to be a very practical mm -hmm. training for an elite. Mm -hmm. Now, my point is that the mighty figures whom I talk about. This is uh, unashamed Western European elite culture that I've got <laughs> in this book. There are four people whom I've always written about from this perspective. And the first chronologically is Machiavelli. And the second is Shakespeare, who's been occupying me always. But I wrote my last book about him, published in 2014, Forensic Shakespeare. The third is Milton, who's never far from my thoughts and whom I've written a lot about. And finally, as you've been rightly saying, Hobbes, on whom I've written three books now, all of these people had in common that they went through this humanist education. Shakespeare is the one who doesn't go to university, but he goes to a very good grammar school, mm -hmm. and so he gets all of this. Now, my point is that there are many features of the writing of all of these major figures that you actually have no chance of understanding mm -hmm. unless you see that the structure of their thinking is a rather unfamiliar structure to us. Mm -hmm. It's the structure of rhetorical invention. Mm -hmm. And um, so... In a succession of essays, I try to show that, first of all, in the case of Machiavelli and his theory of political virtue, and then in two of Shakespeare's plays, where I try to show, in the case of the Merchant of Venice and also in Coriolanus, that these are wholly rhetorically organized plays. And then, of course, Milton and Hobbes um, are humanists in politics. Mm -hmm. And I really want to say about Hobbes that the... Um, the step from humanism to Hobbes, the title of my book, is a very short step indeed. Mm -hmm. Hobbes is often thought of as someone who replaces rhetoric with science in politics, and that's not wrong. He, he does aspire to that. But he is deeply indebted to the humanist tradition and, above all, to humanist understandings of how to think about representation especially in mm. classical theories of representation. Mm. And so that's what I try to pick up in mm. talking about Hobbes. Mm. And there's a marvellous section on, on, on laughter. Ah, oh, there is. Oh, <laughs> so tell us something about that. I mean, this is, again, there's so much in this book, but one of the most <laughs> fascinating things is there's a section on laughter. Yes. Where, course, and again, sorry, to keep, I keep, do keep mentioning Hobbes, but you do say a thing at one point, where the thing is Hobbes gives, gives up on this bit. He tires of this with time, and he does he say abandons laughter. Yes. Example. Well, the psychology of laughter has always interested me. Um, there's a brilliant book by Mary Beard that's recently come out called Laughter in Ancient Rome, um, which puts me right about various things, but also goes over some terrain that I've been deeply interested in, which is what emotion is being expressed by laughter. And what I incautiously called the classical view, although Mary Beard shows that it's just one classical view, is... The view that, although you may not like the sound of this, the truth is that when you laugh, you're expressing contempt. Mm. Uh, and this is picked up in the Roman rhetorical tradition. And in Quintilian, he says, look, this is even written into our language. Readery, the Latin mm. verb for to laugh, is the same mm. as dereadery, the Latin mm. verb for to deride. Mm. So when you laugh, you're always expressing derision. An uncomfortable thought, but one that uh, is extremely influential in Renaissance and early modern culture in two ways, one of which has been much written about and one hardly written about at all. The one that's been much written about sees laughter as Saturnalian. It's a way of keeping the elite in order. It's a way of mocking elites. And Bakhtin's celebrated study of Rabelais is an important source here and has given rise to a, a large literature on Saturnalian ridicule. The world turned upside down, mm -hmm. the sort of thing that Natalie Davis so mm -hmm. interestingly mm -hmm. picked out. I'm interested in something quite different, which has been very little written about, which is 
that the elite also uses laughter, <coughs> understood as an expression of contempt, to police the elite. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the conduct books, beginning with Castiglione, which of course is enormously indebted to classical sources, especially Cicero, you have the view that you're trying to produce a courtly elite with values which are not barbaric, they're not militaristic, they are civilized, they're meant to be tolerant, um, and they are going to be great enemies of what are seen as the potential worst vices of the elite, namely pride and arrogance and vanity and avarice. So I was interested in the use of laughter to police the elite, by the elite. And Hobbes picks this up um, in his early writings. And he says, yes, laughter expresses contempt. We never laugh with people. We're always laughing at them. And he takes this classical view. What's interesting in Leviathan is, rightly, as you say, he eventually comes to the view that this is not only a partial view of laughter, but it's a very cruel one. Mm -hmm. And that it's a kind of warning to the elite in the Leviathan that laughing at people is very dangerous. Of course, he's mm -hmm. dealing with a dueling society in which, as he says, you knew you laugh at someone, you might be dead. Mm. Um, but it's all part of what I take to be Hobbes's fundamental watchword in the Leviathan, which is calm down. Mm -hmm. This is a society which is very, very uncalm. Yes, yes, yes. And the aristocratic ethos with the code of dueling, refusing even the law, has somehow got to be tamed. And so much of what Hobbes is saying is, look, these laws of nature I'm telling you about, which are precepts of reason, they are all precepts like, um, you know, don't mock people, um, don't be prideful, um, be cooperative. Mm -hmm. These are the laws of nature because these are the ways to live mm -hmm. in peace. Mm -hmm. And so laughter is seen there as an enemy of peace. The next question is, is really in a sense, it's the theme of the book, so so, so, so forgive me, how are we going to summarise this, but the point you've already made that actually, um, when, you, when you actually do look at this, the distance from humanism to Hobbes is by no means as great no. as one would be inclined to. No. To think at the outset. No, that's true. And the, the most important instance in which I try to show that is in Hobbes's theory of representation. Shall I say a word about that? Yes, because that's yes, what most interests me in Hobbes. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Hobbes enters into a political arena in which, in the course of the English Revolution in the 1640s, a, a very substantial theory of political representation had been evolved, which was called virtual representation, mm -hmm. which I suppose is roughly the view that we still have today, mm -hmm. uh, where the fundamental metaphor for political representation is taken from the visual arts. Offering a good representation of someone in traditional aesthetics is offering, as, as people used to say, a speaking likeness. Mm -hmm. So political representation, the representation of the people, should be the creation of the likeness of the people. Uh, now, of course, Hobbes can't tolerate that thought because that means that any valid representation of the people must itself be a body of people. Mm -hmm. So that seems to cancel monarchy. And, of course, it was intended to. Mm -hmm. It's a very radical view. Now, Hobbes comes along to say, and it's one of the most creative moments in his political theory, but it comes straight out of classical humanism. You've got the wrong metaphor for representation. Representation is not a metaphor that... Um, owes anything to the visual arts, it owes everything to the theatre. Mm. And that's how he introduces it, and it's from a quotation from, Cic from Cicero, saying that what representation is, is speaking someone else's lines. Mm -hmm. So representation on the stage is not necessarily when I resemble you. We've never really worked out mm. on the stage whether we think people should resemble yeah. other people, but that's not the point. It's not impersonation, it's personation. I take upon you, uh, I take upon myself your role, I act your part, I speak your lines. All the world's a stage. So um, Hobbes profoundly believes that all the world's a stage. You're either representing yourself or you're representing somebody else. And that means you're either speaking your own lines or you're speaking somebody else's lines. So notice he's disjoined political representation from any act of... Um, authorizing a body that has to resemble you. He's mm. saying, think of it more like a theater or a court of law. Mm. When you go into a court of law and the judge says, who represents you? 
um, you can point to uh, an advocate who is a woman and you can say, she represents me. The judge won't say, well, she doesn't look anything like you. Mm -hmm. He'll say, that's absolutely fine. Yeah. Or you can say, I'm going to represent myself. The judge will probably say, well, I wouldn't do that if I were you, <laughs> but that is your right. Yeah. But Hobbes is saying that's representation. Yeah. It's a sufficient condition of you being my representative that I have authorized you. Mm -hmm. It's nothing to do with whether you look like me. Yeah. Of course, that is a dramatic moment because there, of course, monarchy is immediately placed on the same footing as um, any representative assembly, and we can start that debate mm -hmm. again. Do you, um, just moving on, because we, we, we've, we've had about four or five minutes already. Um, so, again, going back to this in a sense, what it means to be an intellectual historian and the, and the, the wrong paths we've taken, etc. You've described a series of wrong paths we've taken yes. already today. How does that bear then upon the present and the sort of debates we might now have about representation, about the state, about the meaning of freedom and so on yes. and so forth? And, yes. and, and where would you, how would you, as an intellectual historian, how would you, how would you situate yourself in those Sorts of yes, well, very, very good question. Thank you. Well, I'm an historian, and so my fundamental aspiration is to reconstruct the past of our thinking about these issues so far as possible on its own terms. Of course, that's an ideal type, and all sorts of contaminations from the present are likely, likely to enter. But the aspiration of the intellectual historian has to be to give an account of what the project was that one of these writers I'm interested in was themselves interested in. But then when I do that, when I study Machiavelli, I find this particular view of freedom. It blazes out from the first two chapters of the discourses. How do we think about freedom? That's the fundamental question in the theory of the state. Because in the absence of freedom, there is no greatness of states. So there's Machiavelli's problematic. Um, when I read Hobbes on representation, I see him repudiating the view of representation that seems to us completely natural. When I think about Hobbes on the state, I see that we've completely abandoned thinking about state personality. So in each of these cases, once I've reconstituted the theory as best I may in its own terms, it becomes a candidate for belief. There it is. It's not the way we think about these things anymore. But is that good or is that bad? We can start to think again about that. That reconnects us with our traditions, but it in a way um, abolishes the distinction between the past and the present because the past is in the present here and it's asking us to think again about our past. But of course, my aspiration is to hold the past and the present completely free from one another, mm -hmm. because the more you import yourself into the past, the more you contaminate yes, it, and so yes, you yes. just use it as a mirror. Yes, yes. And the more you use it as a mirror, the more you admire yourself. And so that means, why are we bothering with the yes, past? Yes, yes. The reason, morally speaking, for bothering with the past is that it has things to tell us. Mm -hmm. That's one of the great tensions, isn't it? The, the, this past and present and how, you know, the... I guess the aspiration is always in the sense, in the sense is, 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 to, is to remove ourselves from the present. Yes. But, but I think from what you're saying, but inevitably there are these, these implications for the present. Yes. Is it enough in terms of what you do and how you've just sketched it, to sort of in a sense to leave it there? To, it's almost like, you know, we've rec I've recovered this, I've set this out for you, yes. and there you are. Yes. I mean, there's a marvellous one of your famous phrases, of course, from many, many years ago, is about doing your thinking for yourself. Yes, of course. I mean, and how does that bear upon Very good. that idea? Yes, good. Right. Um, well, my aspiration is to set the past before the present and to set it before the present in its own terms. And we're not here to praise or blame the past, but here to learn from it. Now, to learn from it in the very strict sense that we're now talking about, Jeremy, would not be to act in propria persona as an historian. It would be to act as a first-order moralist. Mm. But I find that with uh, increasing age <laughs> and with having spent so much time mm -hmm. trying to reconstitute what seem to me important debates about freedom, about representation, mm -hmm. about the state mm -hmm. in their own terms, I am very much more interested now in stepping forward as a moralist and saying, for okay. example, in relation to the theory of freedom, we really have gone in a terrible direction. Mm -hmm. And neoliberalism as a theory of the state and as the view that you're free as long as no one is messing you around 
is doing terrible damage to our institution. Mm -hmm. And I really want to come forward to say that the reason that damage is being done to our institutions is because we have the wrong view of freedom. Mm -hmm. I, I really want to say that. It's not a fruitful view. It misses out extraordinarily important elements in anything that's to do with the phenomenology mm. of feeling free. I do not feel free if I know that all my actions are in fact permissions and that you could stop me from doing them if you wanted, although as it happens you're not, or you say I'm completely benign. This leaves me in a condition of dependency. So one of the things I've become very upset about is the deunionizing of labor forces, mm. where we now have contracts which allow, of course, dismissal um, at will by the mm -hmm. employer. They are, of course, said to be free contracts because they're not coercively entered mm -hmm. into. Mm -hmm. But they're not free contracts mm -hmm. if you think mm -hmm. that freedom is dependence because mm -hmm. they leave you at the mercy mm -hmm. of an employer. Moreover, as employers know perfectly well, and this is another insight from antiquity, slaves are always slavish. Uh, if you live in servitude, you can't fail to be servile, of course, because you don't know what's going to happen to you. So that seems to me a tremendous loss. Another thing which I've become a profound enemy of is all institutions which tell us that they're benign, but harvest huge amounts of personal data uh, which are available for sale. Now, to harvest personal data on colossal scale is rightly, of course, seen in contemporary political debate as an attack on privacy. It is, of course. But that again shows that we're thinking wrong about freedom. It's also an attack on freedom, mm. because this information is power. Now, what is said by the huge engines that um, create and hold all this information is, well, we're not going to do anything harmful with mm. this, of course. Mm. And I want to say, well, but mm. I'm being manipulated here. Mm -hmm. um, you could do something very harmful. Mm -hmm. You could, for example, you might be able to blackmail me. Mm -hmm. But you say, well, I would never dream of doing that. But these are very servile relationships that we're talking about. So if we were thinking differently about freedom, we would certainly think differently about Facebook. We wouldn't say, look, this is a bit of a problem for privacy. Mm -hmm. We would say this is a fundamental attack on freedom. Mm -hmm. We would also be saying this, I think, um, about... Uh, much that passes for liberal democracy now. Uh, I mean, I'm very struck that the conditions that produce freedom in democracies, uh, which of course are not simply electoral, mm. but include and must include other institutions, which mean that people have control over that democracy, mm. these are increasingly under threat. And mm. I was very shocked in the Brexit negotiations when the High Court judges employing, as we must, I think, if we're going to value freedom, a mixed constitution, came out with a judgment which made them enemies of the people. Mm -hmm. This is very dangerous talk. Mm -hmm. And I think that anyone who thinks about freedom as I do will want to say that you not only need to have a mixed constitution in the sense that there must be um, um, parties that are able mm -hmm. to oppose one another and have proper and informed mm -hmm. debates, mm -hmm. but there must be uh, some complex relationships between executive uh, branch and the legislative branch and the judicial branch, mm -hmm. and that none of these must use up the others because any such usurpation loses popular control. Mm -hmm. And popular control is the name of democracy. Mm -hmm. So I worry about democracy because yes. I worry that we've got the wrong theory of freedom. Mm -hmm. It's not a democratic theory at all. Mm. And so how would you... I mean, this is absolutely, absolutely fascinating. So how would you... I mean, that distinction between the historian and the, and the moralist. How do you? Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm aware that uh, you you have been associated with certain political interventions over Brexit, for example. Mm. You were cited as one of the people supporting Remain and, and what have you. Um, how do you see yourself? I mean, can we expect uh, the next book to be the Quentin Skinner moralist book? Or, well, yes. Uh, if, you see, if you see what I mean, how, how, how yes. do you? You articulate those things. How do you see yourself taking those things further, I guess, into broader public debate? I well, thank you, yes. Of course, I have been extremely exercised by the, the constitutional aspect of the Brexit negotiations, not just um, the obloquy heaped upon the judges for doing their job, which seemed to me an extremely sinister development, but also the very fact that it was thought 
an appropriate mechanism under our constitution to ask the multitude for its view. Mm -hmm. The multitude doesn't have one view. That's Hobbes' point. The multitude <laughs> almost never has a single view. And indeed, our multitude had 52% had one view and 48% had the other view. Or if you take how many were eligible to vote, um, then 37.5% of the multitude had the view that Great Britain should leave the European Union. But um, our constitution tells us that we don't poll the multitude. We have a representative system in which my understanding is that when we vote for members of parliament, we vote for someone to use their discretion as a result of hearing debates in order to help to arrive at a judgment which they think to be for the public good. That is our system, rightly or wrongly. Now, if in the Brexit negotiations we do not come to a point in which the Houses of Parliament say, look, Parliament is sovereign, um, thanks for doing the negotiation, uh, it is now our constitutional duty to see whether we believe that to be in the public good, they will be in dereliction of their fundamental constitutional duty as a representative assembly. And I wait with great trepidation to see mm. what will happen. Mm. Are we going to be ruled by the vote of a minority of those eligible to vote in the multitude mm -hmm. who were in a highly mendacious campaign told a pack of lies? Mm. Or are we going to use our own constitution? Are we really not going mm. to use our own constitution? Mm. I feel very exercised about all of this. Mm. But of course that's to speak as a citizen yes. and as a moralist and yes. as someone interested in the theory of representation. Yes. Yes. But to answer your more general question, um, well, I, honestly, Jeremy, how long am I going to be able to do this? Uh, you, you sweetly <laughs> said I've been doing it for quite a long time, and it's true that my earliest... That's because you started young. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, the fact remains that my earliest published work on these issues was in 1962, 62. so that is a long time ago. And uh, I don't take for granted that I'm going to be able to do this, but mm. my current research is about how we ever came to lose this theory of freedom mm. and it's going to be an attempt to show historically what the forces were that undermined the view of freedom which is a view of equal freedom and therefore a view of democratic freedom which it seems to me is alone the view of freedom that we should have in a democracy so that will be an historical work mm. but the motivation mm -hmm. will not be historical mm -hmm. but i think if the truth be told my motivations have never been historical they've always really? been moralistic mm -hmm. and I've always wanted to study those aspects of our historical record that enable me to try to say something of some moral relevance. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting and it's a good point I think to end. Thank you very very much indeed. Oh, thank you. We, we, I, I'm looking forward greatly to the next book because I'm, <laughs> as I'm sure everyone who's heard this this podcast will be thinking and we cannot wait to read that. Oh, well, sure that'll be it'll take me some time. Absolutely, absolutely <laughs> marvellous. Thank you very much indeed. I think it's been a marvellous uh, overview of what you've done and why you do it and, and why it's so important and uh, and thank thank you very very much indeed well let me just end by thanking you jeremy for excellent questions and for letting us pursue them in this winding and conversational way i've really enjoyed it been a pleasure thank you very much indeed